Welcome to Horror Stories from the Womb. I'm your host, Paulette Kamenica. Teenage girls are repeatedly told that pregnancy could fall on them at any moment. Caution is the watchword. But often, when those young women grow up, pregnancy is nowhere to be found. This was the experience of today's guest. When she and her partner set out to start a family, month after month, the pregnancy tests were negative. More than a year went by without success. They did what many people in this circumstance do. They look for medical help with infertility. But this is where their story strays from expectation. Their path to pregnancy was in no way typical, highlighting the limits of our knowledge about fertility. And it ultimately gave them a new perspective on what it means to be a family. After our conversation, I went back into the interview and included information about some of the medical issues we discussed. I also interviewed an audiologist to learn about hearing loss and the latest technologies in that field. Let's get to the interview. Hi, welcome to the show. Can you tell us your name and where you're from? Yep. My name is Danielle and I am from Kalamazoo, Michigan. Nice. And Danielle, how many kids do you have? I have two kids, both boys, ages six and three. So young. Before you got pregnant, what did you think pregnancy would be like? I thought it would be really easy to get pregnant. Um, My older sister got pregnant very easily, very young, as did my mother. So I assumed that as soon as my husband were ready to get pregnant, it would happen basically overnight when we wanted it to happen. And so I just assumed when we were ready, it would happen. And did you think pregnancy would be easy or like, did you have an image of what that process would be like or? Yeah. I've heard stories of it being really easy for some people, being really hard for others. Um, I pictured that maybe I would kind of fall somewhere in between. I felt like I was in pretty decent shape that um, if I kept working out that it would be fine for me. But, you know, my mom had some twins that were born very early. So I knew that there was the likelihood that I might have some issues, but I didn't really know what to expect, to be honest. Yeah. And was it easy to get pregnant that first time? It wasn't. It was not easy at all. It took us quite a while to get pregnant. And how long did you, like, how long was the process? And did you end up turning to, like, doctors to be involved? Or how did that go? Yeah. So um, we got married in May of 2011. And we started trying almost immediately. um, And basically determined pretty quickly that it wasn't going to happen overnight. We started... um, determining that we were going to have to have somebody help us, you know, obviously a fertility clinic, we reached out to almost, I think it was like the fall that year. Um, we always assumed that you wait six months, you try if, if that doesn't work, you know, there might be something else going on. So we went to an open house that they had one evening and sat down, kind of learned, you know, what are some of the causes, you know, what it could be. And we got a free consultation with them and really dove into what could be causing it and really found out what our next steps would be, um, which include a lot of testing. Yeah. The testing is not, not as fun as you'd think it would be. No. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't just myself that went through it. It was my husband. So lots of pokes and prodded lots of tests, um, x-rays, blood work, you know, a lot of uncomfortable tests, you know, very non-discreet tests, you know, invasive, um, but a lot of necessary tests to really dive into the nitty gritty of what was going on. Um, my husband's eight years older, so they thought maybe something to do with age. I was younger. So there really wasn't a lot of concern as to what was causing issues. It took them quite a while to figure it out. They thought 
It could be related to a hernia injury my husband had. So he ended up having hernia surgery, didn't really help anything. They put us on medications. They did, you know, different procedures. I mean, there were so many trial and errors that they tried before we really determined what the cause was. So it sounds like they figured out what the cause was. It was, yeah, they determined that my um, spouse had a very low sperm count and basically was disappearing before their eyes and they didn't really know why. Um, it could, they said it could have been caused from an injury from when he was younger. He was really active in sports. Um, so it could have been one, you know, injury to the groin that maybe he didn't even know could have had the impact that it had on him today. But a normal person has like 20,000 every time they ejaculate. And he was like 1,400. Oh, wow. Um, so very, very low. It sounds like Danielle's partner had a semen analysis and his sperm count came back low. To give some context to the numbers, according to the Mayo Clinic, normal sperm densities range from 15 million to greater than 200 million sperm per millimeter of semen. You're considered to have a low sperm count if you have fewer than 15 million sperm per milliliter or less than 39 million sperm per total ejaculate. And so basically their their course of action was to free some right away to try to retain as much as they could before they were gone. Yeah. Yeah. That's a little scary. Yeah. How did he take that? Was he okay? Or it was upsetting or no, he was devastated um, because they called me to tell the news because I was basically the contact and I had to deliver the news with him over the phone. And it, I mean, it, I could hear the wind just kind of leave his body. I mean, it was like a, a punch of the gut and I remember him telling me, you know, you can leave me if you want. I know that you really want kids because he knew that it was going to be really hard for us to have kids. And I told him, like, I made this commitment, like, we'll figure it out. But he felt that he was going to hold us back from having the family that we wanted. And it was just devastating because I couldn't be there. I couldn't tell him in person. Um, I had sent him a message and just said, hey, we got the results. You know, I can, we can talk about it later. And he's like, no, I want them now. So he was yeah. the one that wanted the news. It was just a really crappy way of delivering it to him. Yeah, it's super hard. I, so we had a trouble getting pregnant also. And and the issue, it was in my body. You, you always imagine that you'd be able to have kids. And so mm-hmm. it's kind of a shocking blow to think like, oh, there's this thing that's been wrong that I had no idea was going on. And sort of here we are. So I'm very sympathetic. Yeah. To he just felt like he was just failure. You know, he thinks it's so easy to, to be a parent. You know, he saw his friends and family have no problems. And then for him to feel like he was holding us back, it was just devastating for him. Yeah. That's super hard. Although spoiler alert, it does work out. So it does. Yes. Okay. So, so how did you guys get pregnant? So in a non, a non way that we thought was going to happen. So we underwent a couple rounds of fertility treatment, starting with um, basically went through the, the, the procedure to have IVF done, um, did IVF. Okay, Danielle talks about IVF without much detail, but it is a physically demanding process and can be an expensive one too. First, you'll get fertility drugs that contain FSH or follicle stimulating hormone, which tell your body to produce more than just one egg per month. During this step, doctors use ultrasound and blood work to check in on your ovaries and hormone levels. The next step is egg retrieval, which is likely harder than it sounds. You get an injection the day before the retrieval to make the eggs mature more quickly, and the actual retrieval occurs in an outpatient surgery in which a thin needle is put into the ovaries to suction out the eggs. Your partner provides a sperm sample, and then the two meet. 
Either egg and sperm enjoy some privacy in a petri dish, or the doctor can inject sperm into the egg. In the next three to five days after fertilization, the resulting embryos are graded. Doctors look at the development of the embryo and consider both the cells that will form the fetus and the cells that will form the placenta. Next, the woman has to take another medication to prepare the lining of the uterus to receive an embryo. And finally, the embryos with the highest grades are implanted in the woman's uterus through another in-office procedure. And lastly, if, fingers crossed, all goes well, a pregnancy test returns a positive result. One full cycle takes three weeks, and according to the New York Times, the average cost in the U.S. in 2019 was between $12,000 and $17,000, not including medication. To someone who has never been through it, it sounds like a full-on campaign. Um, did that procedure, didn't work. A couple months later, we did FET um, in November of the same year. What's, um, what's FET? So it's frozen embryo transfer. So it's basically okay. IVF, but we don't have to go through all the shots, all of the basically growing the embryos, basically the really uncomfortable things that you have to go through. It's just basically transferring everything, which was so much easier. Yeah. So we went through that in November. We did get pregnant and then it ended in a miscarriage um, right before Christmas. So devastated again, but I'm, and I'm fast forwarding because that was actually led up to our second pregnancy. Our first pregnancy, I fast forwarded our first pregnancy. We were getting ready to do IUI, um, which is a, you know, I'm not even to the next step of IVF, basically very minimal form of um, basically fertility treatment. As Danielle suggests, an IUI or intrauterine insemination is a cakewalk compared to IVF. Basically, your partner provides a semen sample and the doctor takes the sperm and puts it in your uterus when you're ovulating. It's a 10-minute procedure. It happens in the office. It's completely painless. And was getting, I went in the day before I got a call to do blood work. You have to go through all the proper stuff to make sure you're not pregnant, make sure everything looks good. And so we were ready to do IUI the following week. And I got a call on a Friday morning from the fertility clinic. And I was expecting them to say, hey, blood work looks good. This is your appointment. Stated for this day, this time. And she was like, Hey, um, we got your blood results back and you're pregnant. And I was like, excuse <laughs> me. Cause we had tried for two years at this point. Yeah. Naturally not trying to prevent anything. And I was like, excuse me. She was like, you're pregnant. And I was like, um, Daniel Jones is a very common name. Um, you're sure you have the right one. You want to verify birth date or address or, you know, anything. And yeah, she's like, no, you're, you know, this is the right one. And I was like, well, how can that be? She's like, we don't know. And I remember hurrying home. I had just gotten into work that day and I hurried home and told my husband he was asleep at the time he was working second shift. So of course he had just been asleep for a couple hours and told him. So we ended up getting pregnant in between treatment the first time with our oldest and the second time, which I had already kind of alluded to, we went through a couple rounds of fertility treatment, which ended in a miscarriage. And then that was mid-November that the miscarriage went through. And then we naturally got pregnant in December. So spent thousands of dollars for fertility treatment only to end up getting pregnant naturally twice. Wow. That, I mean, that's sort of the tricky thing with uh, when you're in the fertility gauntlet is there's a limit to how much they understand. So mm -hmm. once you, you know, right, they think it's the sperm issue, but obviously that's not it. Yeah. <laughs> you got pregnant that yeah. way. Right? So yeah. it's hard to know really what to pinpoint and, and, uh, mm. And uh, amazing. So, and what was the pregnancy like? First one with my oldest was horrible. They say, you know, there's such a thing as morning sickness. Mine was an all day sickness. 
Um, I was sick nonstop for 18 weeks. And by the time I, I found out I was pregnant, I was six, seven weeks and it was just awful. But after the 18 weeks, it was smooth sailing. The pregnancy was completely normal. He came, he was two weeks early, but he was still full term. He was still eight pounds. My husband's a 10 pound baby. So I'm really glad that I wasn't late. No kidding. Um, yeah. My second pregnancy, I didn't have any morning sickness. It was really weird. Um, so completely opposite. They say he was born kind of right on time, but, uh, we had some complications right away. He was born pretty sick. He had pneumonia when he was born. So he was thrust right into NICU almost immediately for over two weeks. Wait, um, what, what does that mean? That means right when he was born, he had pneumonia. They said he was, he had pneumonia. Yeah. He was born with a pneumonia. I was actually really sick, um, leading up to giving birth to him. And so they said somehow it was transferred to him right when he was born. And so he got pneumonia within hours of being born and, um, they weren't sure what it was right away. They actually tested him for um, meningitis. They had a spinal tap on him with it within oh. a couple hours of him being born. And, you know, they, they weren't sure he was on oxygen. He had a feeding tube. It was an awful experience. A little bit of context here. Pneumonia is one of the leading causes of neonatal respiratory distress and is most commonly acquired at birth. Respiratory distress affects up to 7% of term newborns and represents one of the most common reasons for admission to the neonatal intensive care unit, the NICU. It was one of those things where, you know, the first one was born healthy. You don't think anything's wrong. And then your second child basically ripped out of your arms, not breathing by himself, essentially. And they don't know what's wrong with them. And, you know, fortunately he ended up being okay, but it was a very scary situation, completely opposite. I mean, we were able to take my first son home within a day and here my second one is in NICU for over two weeks and then splitting time between being home with my three and a half year old and being at the hospital with my newborn was really difficult. Yeah, that sounds difficult and totally scary. God, it's such a, yeah, it's so, it must have been so unexpected since when he was born, they probably he passed the APGAR and they thought he was fine. Mm -hmm. And yeah. Um, and I'm sure the waiting to figure out that it was pneumonia is a, is a scary thing. Meningitis is a terrifying thing to hear, right? Yeah. And he, he passed one hearing screen on one side, not the other. And so they did basically constituted that as fluid in the ears. But obviously later down, we found out there was something completely wrong with his hearing later on. So it was just a very life altering experience overall and really changed our lives for forever, but really in a good way. I'll, I'll say. Tell us the story of him getting out of the NICU. Like, how does that happen? You're, you're going to visit and they're taking care of him. They figure out it's pneumonia. Yep. So they figure out it's pneumonia and they basically have to stabilize them. And so it's just a waiting game. We had to basically make sure his oxygen levels were going to be at a certain spot where they had to be without the breathing tube. Um, so he was in basically the, I don't even know what they call it. The, the breathing, apparatus where he, you know, he's in there, he has the breathing tube, but his action just kept slipping. So he wasn't breathing by himself. He had fluid in his lungs. And so basically it was just trying to monitor that. Um, cause we couldn't can, hold him for several days after he was born. Can they give so him, that was really hard. that's super hard. Can, can they give him, um, antibiotics or anything? Like what do you do for pneumonia? They did end up giving him antibiotics. They gave up genomycin, um, which is a very common antibiotic that they give children that has any kind of respiratory distress, pneumonia, stuff like that. And so 
at first it wasn't working. So they weren't sure again, if this was an ammonia, I mean, cause he had another unknown infection. They never identified what the other infection was, but he, I mean, it got really scary. At one point we didn't know if we were going to bring him home because he was so weak, so frail, he wasn't eating. And, you know, I, I just remember looking at him and he was just hooked up to all these monitors and machines and every time they would take him off the breathing tube and the food tube, everything would just drop and nurses would rush in. And so really stressful. I mean, my husband, and I basically lived apart for two and a half weeks, but eventually he got better. The genomycin cleared everything up. He did pat, he did fail his hearing screen before he left again, but they just kept assuring us, you know, it's just fluid in his ears. It'll be fine. And you know, it didn't end up being fine. We did find out there was another issue altogether, but he did end up coming home and he was healthy from there on out. So what's the other issue altogether? Um, he was born deaf. Oh, wow. Yeah. So at first he had passed one here, one side of his hearing screen. And so at first we were being told that the genomycin actually caused him to go deaf because if genomycin isn't monitored correctly, it can cause deafness in children. You might wonder, why would they use antibiotics that can potentially cause deafness? Well, here's why. This class of antibiotics is used because they're effective on a broad range of bacteria, which is unlike most modern antibiotics. This is great in a case like Danielle's where they can't pin down the source of the infection. It's particularly useful in newborns who can die from infection in one to two days before tests could reveal the identity of the illness. But we found out later that after he failed the newborn screen, we went to another hearing facility and he actually failed that one altogether and then got a referral to Mott's Children's Hospital in Ann Arbor, where it was determined that he was born deaf. And we had other genetic testing done and found out that he had Connexus 26, which is the most common gene that causes deafness in children. To give some context for this discussion, according to the CDC, about one in 500 infants is born with or develops hearing loss. 50 to 60% of hearing loss in babies is due to genetic causes. One specific genetic mutation has caused deafness in Danielle's son. In his case, it's a mutation in the gene known as GJB2. This gene contains instructions for a protein called Connexin 26, which plays an important role in the functioning of the tiny hairs of cilia that help to communicate sound to the brain. The mutation affects the production of this vital protein. So he was actually born deaf underwent cochlear implant surgery at a year and he's thriving. You wouldn't even know he's deaf. He's three and a half years old and he's amazing. Wow. That is a lot of, a lot to take in, in the beginning. Um, did you, did you guys sign when he was before the implants or like, how did you communicate? Yep. So because in the state of Michigan, they don't do any kind of surgery until a year old insurance companies won't cover it. We did start signing with him. He does know basic sign language. It is something that we want to continue doing with him because he is part of the deaf community without his cochlear implants. Of course, um, he can, is completely deaf. He can't even hear if he was next to a jet engine, he can't even hear that. I mean, that's how deaf he is, but we do sign with him. He knows a lot of the basic signs, but he's actually had speech therapy since he was six months old. Oh, wow. So he has been very entwined with the hearing community. Um, he did have hearing aids um, from when he was two months old and on. And even though there's not much that they probably did for them, they still basically told his hearing that they were supposed to be hearing. So basically got all of his 
hearing mechanisms ready for that sound that was eventually going to be transmitted once he had that surgery. So he did have hearing aids um, up until his surgery. I checked in with a pediatric audiologist to learn about how hearing loss is treated and how cochlear implants work. Hi, thanks so much for coming on the show. Can you introduce yourself for us? Thank you so much. My name is Dr. Michelle Hu. I'm a pediatric audiologist in Southern California, and I also happen to be hard of hearing or deaf myself, and I utilize bilateral cochlear implants. Oh, wow. Let's talk for a second about Danielle's son. What are the hearing aids doing? So um, in order to get a cochlear implant, we have a very um, uh, in-depth evaluation process. If an invasive surgery. We're not going to do that just on anybody. Uh, We want to evaluate the hearing, see what kind of hearing loss it is, the nature of it. Sometimes we take a look at the etiology of it or where that hearing loss came from, because if the anatomy is not conducive for putting that electrode in there, we don't want to put them through that. So we're doing MRIs, we're doing evaluations of the hearing. We're also seeing do hearing aids help? Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. You can give a person sound, but it might not be clear. Kind of like when we used to go to movie theaters, if the volume was louder, you would think that that would be better, but sometimes it would get distorted. Yeah. We also, we're taking a look, do they benefit from acoustical amplification? As well as if this is a young child, are they doing their diligence and teaching their child this device is part of, we're going to utilize this device for you. If that kid is just ripping it off every day and they're not, you know, placing boundaries around that and teaching them, no, like these are shoes. You need to wear shoes when you go outside. These are hearing aids. You're going to wear hearing aids um, so that we can see if there's any benefit from them. If he's not doing that, why put your son through a surgery if he's not going to be set up in a good environment to utilize the processors on there. Okay, that makes sense. Very expensive surgery and a very expensive processor. And I've seen some of them go down the toilet. I've seen them fly out the car window. I've seen them being dropped. I grew up in the Midwest um, in uh, heating vents. So you don't want to lose those devices, you know. So all of these different practices are in place for a reason. Um, But typically hearing aids are to see, do they benefit from any kind of acoustical information? I don't know that much about deafness. Does it have to do with formation of certain tubes in the ear or is it like a connection to the brain or how does that work? Yeah. So basically he didn't have the cilia in the ears that we have that helps transmit the sound. So he wasn't born with That's a little hairs? That's Mm -hmm. a little hair? Yeah. Yep. So he wasn't born with that. Um, and so there's not a way to correct that, obviously. Yeah. So the cochlear implants basically manipulates that system and transmits the sounds externally through a magnet on the external part that's connected to a part underneath the skin that goes into his brain that helps manipulate the sound for him. So let's talk about cochlear implants. What it is basically is an electrode is placed inside the cochlea. That's the snail shell portion of your ear. And um, that electrode, so let's see, if you unravel the cochlea, you roll it all out, it's kind of like keys on a piano. It goes low pitches to high pitches. We're placing that electrode in there. And with the new technology, I actually am uh, I'm a cochlear implant specialist. I program 
how much energy goes to different areas of that electrode stimulating those sounds so that the recipient can hear. The electrode is stimulating the hearing nerve directly. So it's bypassing that earlobe, that outer ear, it's bypassing the middle ear bones and going straight to the nerve. Wow, that's amazing. It's pretty it's cool like, technology. It's super cool. Is there a surgery to affix the outside portion? Like, how does that no. work? So the surgery is strictly the electrode as well as the internal processor. Um, basically a computer chip, if you say. I have an external processor that collects the sound, um, like a microphone, and the device takes that sound from acoustic to electrical, transfers it to the inside, and then plays it out in there. So it's just amazing. I mean, he had that surgery. He had just turned one. It was the day after his first birthday. He went through a four and a half hour surgery. Um, and then he was implanted or the sound was actually turned on at 13 months. And he he's talking like any other three and a half year old and he's only been hearing for two years. That's amazing. Yeah, um, it's amazing. Wh what was it like when they turned the sound on? He was terrified. So you, it's funny cause you always see those videos of kids that are like smiling and laughing. And our um, audiologist told us, they're like, Danielle, just be aware. A lot of times kids are terrified because they haven't heard sound in 13, 12 months or whenever yeah. they're actually, you know, when they're turned yeah. on. And so our son was scared. He cried and, um, you know, he's in a world he's never known before. Yeah. And he was completely silent before then. So he was terrified at first. And then it was amazing because as soon as he started hearing sounds, he was like looking every which way. And it was just amazing to be able to finally say, I love you because you think for the nine months you're carrying your child, every time you're singing or reading or saying, I love you, they're hearing that. And just to, yeah. as a mom, know that entire time they were never hearing it. It was gut wrenching to actually hear that. Um, but now he doesn't stop talking. It's amazing how that works. Right. Uh, totally amazing. So, yeah. so we think like cochlear implants, it, I mean, one thing that's kind of amazing about that, I imagine is that, um, his hearing probably, I imagine won't change like other people, like as you age, you Correct. lose, right. He'll, he'll mm -hmm. keep that defined hearing, which is yep. sort of cool. Yep. Yep. Um, and it doesn't have any effect on balance or anything like that. Mm -mm. Nope. So they say that some kids can develop like headaches and stuff down the road. Um, and some people experience vertigo, but we haven't seen anything with him. He hasn't, you know, ex hasn't expressed any headaches. I mean, he's three and a half. So, you know, maybe he doesn't know what those things are yet, but, um, we haven't noticed any of those things with him. Um, because the Conexus 26 gene, it, it's the most common thing. It's, it's the easiest form of deafness to treat. Yeah, that's um, awesome. There's other forms of deafness that can cause other issues on the road, like blindness or other things. He tested negative for those things. Um, so we were very fortunate that it was this, but basically um, this gene, it, it's weird because we don't have any family deafness history in our family. So my husband actually has one part of this gene and I had the other one, they were paired, they caused it. And we never knew we had these genes. Yeah. Um, so it was just this perfect mix of, you know, opposites attract and here we go. Um, but my oldest, our oldest doesn't have any of the genes, which is oh, very totally rare. Yeah. He should have one or the other and he didn't have any of them. Wow. So it's a very weird situation, but it's been a blessing because it brought everybody really close. My mom moved home 
to just to be part of the the experience and we all learn sign language and we're trying to be involved with the deaf community as much as we can so it's just been a very rewarding albeit scary at first yeah um, yeah you think when your child's born deaf you think there's you're never going to be able to communicate I grew up not knowing any deaf people so I was like oh my god my child's never gonna be able to hear me um, but the technology that we have today is amazing absolutely amazing in your time being an audiologist, I bet you've seen like changes in technology. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. Absolutely. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, the hearing aids that I grew up with were analog hearing aids. They were not digital at all. To adjust them, you would take a little screwdriver in the back door of a hearing aid and turn up the AGC or turn up the volume here, turn up the bass and treble. Now the hearing aids are digital. Um, they have a lot of channels, much like an equalizer on like a stereo system. We can adjust the bass, we can adjust this pitch, that pitch, all along the gamut or the range of sound. Um, we have different bells and whistles on devices. My, For example, my processors now, I can link up to my iPhone and I can hear it directly in my ears with um, just... I get a direct auditory input from my phone and I'm listening to that person in two ears. So I have that advantage over someone with normal hearing who's holding a device, electrical sound, coming out acoustical sound, going into their ear and there might be environmental sounds going on everywhere. Um, technology has definitely improved and think about it. We've got so many people in labs and doing research and engineers doing this and that. It's whenever something is lacking, that creativity comes, that ideas come. So people want to take a, a quote unquote problem and see what they can do to help. Totally amazing. And it is really lucky when you have an issue to have a common one, right? That's already mm -hmm. kind of, Absolutely. especially since like the fertility one was not common and they couldn't figure yeah. it out. Like nope. if you, that's like the perfect trade, right? That's exactly yeah, how you want it to work out. So what are the kids into? So my six-year-old's really big into, he's just getting into the video games, um, Minecraft. He got a Nintendo Switch for Christmas. Um, so he loves those things. Um, my youngest one is still really big into trucks, fire trucks, police cars, stuff like that. Um, but they, they love being outdoors. They are outdoor kids. If they could spend the whole day outside, they would. Um, but they just got a new puppy a couple months ago and they're obsessed with their puppy. Um, I wish they'd get along better. Um, but they're boys and so they fight and battle it out every day, but, um, they're typical boys. They love the dirt. They love to get dirty. They love messes. So yeah. that sounds fun. Yeah. yeah. Um, so if you could give advice to your younger self about this process of creating a family, what do you think you would tell her? Show yourself some grace. I think one of the things that my husband and I could have done better of is, you know, he, he tried to own a lot of the blame. I tried to own a lot of the blame. And so for a long time, we both tried to just shelter, like shelter each other from it. And instead of working as a team, we tried to bottle it up and not talk about it. And I think it's just show yourself some grace because you have no idea what you're, what you're going to go through in the future. Um, but work as a team, it's, there's going to be things that you might not know you're going to experience. And my husband and I have been through a lot in the, 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 you know, 10 years we've been married and, um, they brought us together, but that's because we've had to work really hard to be a team. Um, but we always didn't, we didn't always do that. We had to work for it. Yeah. That's, that's a, that's a useful lesson for younger you. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and last time we spoke, you mentioned something about um, what you did with the rest of your um, IVF yep. uh, materials. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, why don't you tell us about that? Yeah. So um, after my husband and I decided we were done having children, um, we still had six embryos left over that our fertility clinic would have just destroyed um, because of the fact that we carried this stuff gene. Um, they basically considered them damaged. And so we knew that we didn't want them destroyed because they were years of tears and, you know, it was all these hopes that we had for children. Um, so we decided wait, wait, to- Wait, wait, sorry, sorry. Pause for one second here. That's kind of a crazy decision. It was. To suggest like, these are not, like, I'm surprised that they would do that. And I I would imagine there are many couples who would love to have those. Absolutely. Eggs. So and we'll find that out. Yeah. yeah. Um because there's a lot of families that had the same kind of troubles we did. Yeah. Um, and so we decided to, there was somebody that I knew that went through a private embryo adoption and I reached out to her and I said, Hey, how did you go about this? And she put me in touch with somebody who ran a private Facebook group for families looking for embryo adoption. Wait, so we um, talk a little bit about that. I've never heard the term embryo adoption. Yeah. So it's basically, um, it's basically an open adoption, but it's basically tissue is what they say in Michigan because they're not, they're not born. Right. So, yeah. um, you still have to go through the, the same process. There's still an attorney involved. There's still paperwork that has to be filled out. Um, we still had to sign over legal rights, um, to these embryos as if they were children. Um, we had to just go through medical, um, backgrounds, family history backgrounds. We had to disclose a lot of personal information to whatever family we ended up going through as did the family that we chose. So there's still a lot of legality around it. It's just not the same thing that people would picture as far as going into a facility looking to adopt children that are already born that are in the system under foster care. These are tissues or embryos that are sitting frozen in a fertility clinic waiting to go through a procedure or not so very different than what most people think is embryo or an adoption process yeah. if you will yeah it's hard to get accurate numbers on how common this practice is according to the cdc in 2018 approximately 1.9 percent of all infant births in the u.s were conceived using assisted reproductive technology where the main technology is ivf there's a lot of variation across place and time the numbers of IVF births vary a lot by states, in part likely driven by the availability of fertility clinics. So for example, the states of Pennsylvania and Illinois have roughly the same population, about 12 and a half million people, but Pennsylvania has 15 fertility clinics and Illinois has 25. As of 2017, Wyoming and New Hampshire had no clinics. And according to a New York Times article from 2019, of the 2 million transfers of embryos to a woman's uterus, Recorded by the CDC, between the years 2000 and 2016, only 16,000 were donor embryos. But this number is growing too. So what we did is we got in touch with this lady on this Facebook group and she was like, okay, we'll put together a profile of what you're looking for. Give a little bit of history on yourselves. And so that's exactly what we did. It was a Friday afternoon. It was like 12 o'clock in the afternoon. Um, and we obviously, the, the biggest thing for us is we wanted to be as open and honest as possible. So we said, Hey, you know, we do carry this gene. It does cost 25% deafness in these genes. So there's six of them. So the likelihood that one's going to be deaf is very high, obviously. Um, so we knew that it was going to deter some people because 
you know, taking on the responsibility of having a deaf child, it's costly, right? It's, it's, it's expensive. It's emotionally draining. It's all of those things, but it's also very rewarding. So you have to find the right person. And we knew that we didn't want somebody to have one of our children and then say, oh, well, this isn't one I signed up for. This is now a burden, right? And so we want to be very careful in our selection. Um, Wait, because can I, ask you, can I ask you one question? Hmm? Um, since this is a drawn out process, it's interesting to me that you've decided to do all this work to transfer the embryos. Mm-hmm. What, what was that conversation like between you and your husband? Between my husband and I? Yeah. Um, so we decided on doing this when our youngest was... It was actually right after his first birthday. Um, but we felt that we were, we were definitely done having children and those embryos had sat there for upwards of five years at that point. And so we wanted to give them the opportunity, opportunity at life, if you will. Um, and we knew that there were so many other families that were struggling like us. And so we really wanted to bless somebody like that. We have a very strong faith. And so we wanted to give back if we could. Um, but we did ask our family's blessing for that because it's a big thing. I mean, my parents technically have grandchildren in a different state. Um, so it was a big responsibility to, um, ask blessings for people and understand that if this worked for somebody that we were going to have biological children, in somebody else's care in a different state. Yeah. Um, so we went through a counseling for it. We did go through an interview process with the family that we ended up choosing. Um, and you know, we did know exactly what we we're getting ourselves into. So it wasn't, I know it sounds like it was a pretty quick process. Um, and it wasn't, it wasn't, but it's something that we thought long and hard about before we did it. Um, and I think it's been so rewarding since because once we actually put this profile up, um, within two hours, we had 10 families that were interested. That's amazing. And all of them knew that there's a possibility of them being deaf. Right. Um, and the amazing thing about it. So I I always say that there's a God wink, right. And so, um, for us, our God wink was the family that we chose. The mother, um, has a deaf education background. Oh, wow. The father's a pastor. So if anybody could handle yeah. What was going to be thrown at them? If any of these children were going to be born deaf, it was going to be this couple. They were originally from the same area as us. They're around the same age as us. And after we got off this interview, if you will, it was a two hour interview and it felt like we were long lost friends. I literally have goosebumps. I, yeah. I that is so amazing. Couldn't pick some, a more perfect pair. Yeah. And they ended up, it ended up working. They ended up having twin oh, daughters. Awesome. Um, wow. I'm a twin. I have a twin sister, so it's really cool. I mean, we get updates. We're friends on Facebook. Um, They sent us, they sent us a beautiful Christmas gift this year with their, it's a Christmas ornament with their fingerprints on it. Um, That's awesome. And we sent them birthday gifts and Christmas gifts. And it's just a great relationship. It's an open adoption. So um, if we ever want to meet in the future, we can. Um, If our boys want to meet their sisters in the future, they can. That's something we both agreed we wanted. We didn't want to close it so that our, our my kids didn't know their sisters and vice versa. Um, and so it's been a really great blessing. It really has. That is amazing. How, how old are the girls? They turned a year in May. So they're a little over a year and a half. And they share a birthday with my brother-in-law too. So it's kind of crazy. Oh my God. That's so connected. Mm-hmm. Wow. 
And are you guys like physically far apart or can you get together easily or? No, they're in Iowa. So I'm in Michigan. They're in Iowa. So they're not very far apart. Um, They have a lot of family in the state of Michigan. So I feel like they're super close. That's amazing. Have you met them yet? I have not. No. I feel like we have because I see them on Facebook all the time and get pictures all the time. And it's just crazy. That's amazing. And such a beautiful ending for this story because I mean, you literally have given family to this, Mm -hmm. to these other people, which is just an amazing thing to give. The cool update on that is she got naturally pregnant again. And so now we have four embryos left. And so per of our agreement, we get those back, my husband and I, and so we get to bless another family with us. And we, my husband and I decided that we want the other couple um, the twins, mother and father to be part of that process, because now not only are my boys involved, but now they have sisters. So we're going to select another family and potentially bless another family with kids. That is amazing. And the, and the people who are going for embryo adoptions, I'm assuming either can't afford IVF, um, and are having trouble getting pregnant. And so this is kind of what they can do. Yeah. And the embryo adoption is less, less expensive than IVF. Embryo adoption is typically a gift. They don't typically pay for anything um, other than just the process of the implantation, which is around $2,000. So it's it's very inexpensive compared to IVF. IVF is 10 to 12, 15 upwards, depending on the clinic you go through. So this has been a gift and it's just been a really great process. Great experience. Oh my God. Amazing. Thank you mm-hmm. so much for telling us the story, Danielle. I'm going to, I'm going to look out for that now. Cause that's such a yeah. cool um, thing to do. Yeah. Um, and thanks for, thanks for sharing everything about the story. I really yeah, appreciate thank it. you for having me and letting me okay. share it. Thanks again to Dr. Michelle who for her insights about hearing aids and cochlear implants and for giving me advice about how to get transcripts for the audio you're hearing today. Dr. Who has a Facebook group where she regularly shares information about what she calls conquering life with hearing loss called Mama Who Hears, and I'll put a link to that in the extended show notes, along with the audio transcript, all of which can be found at warstoriesfromthewomb.com. Thanks to Danielle for sharing this incredible story. Links to resources about many of the issues we discussed can also be found on the War Stories website. And thank you for listening. If you like this episode, feel free to like and subscribe and leave a review. If you'd like to contribute your story to the podcast, go to the War Stories website and sign up. We'll be back soon with another amazing story about making the journey from person to parent.